If for the past uh, seven weeks, I think it is, or so, and I'm not going to rehearse uh, what at first seemed to be his unscripted life. Uh, he didn't know what was going to happen from one day to the next. Um, but if you want to know what's been happening and you haven't been here, you'll have to read chapters 37 through 42 to catch up or listen to the, uh, the audios on the, the church, uh, church's uh, website page of previous messages. Uh, but when we left off last week, if you remember, the famine that Joseph had correctly interpreted in Pharaoh's dream had come to pass and it had even spread to Canaan. Uh, where his family were living, where 20 years before uh, he himself had been sold as a slave by his brothers. And he's now uh, risen to be the prime minister of Egypt and his brothers uh, arrive, sent by their father Jacob to get grain, to get food, to take back to their own families who were starving. And they, uh, they met Joseph, if you remember, who recognized them, uh, but they didn't recognize him. And he puts one of them, Simeon, in jail and tells them that if they want more food in the future, that they have to bring their brother Benjamin, who had been left behind, back with them the second time. So that's where we had left it off. And, and in doing all that, Joseph had kind of posed a, a moral quandary for his brothers. Uh, Twenty years earlier, they had abandoned him. And now they had an opportunity to abandon yet one more of their brothers. They could return to Canaan with the grain that they had set out to buy, together with the money that they had set aside to buy it, but it would be minus their, their cru cru cruel brother Simeon. Remember, it was Simeon who had actually said that they should kill Joseph in the first place. Um, and in some ways, they might have been glad to be rid of him. But if the brothers have changed during the intervening 20 years, um, here was an opportunity for them to prove to Joseph that their repentance was beyond words. Uh, how would they respond when they opened their sacks of grain and they found uh, their money inside? Um, would they return with Benjamin? And, and what would they tell their father when they came back without Simeon? All these questions were to be answered. Well, today we're going to explore Genesis chapters 42, 43, and 44. So if you have the roast on, uh, it could be burnt offering for, for lunch, but we're just going to touch on those chapters, actually. Um, but in some ways, these chapters are a retelling of the very first chapter in Joseph's story, ch chapter 37, except that this time, the shoe is on the other foot. Joseph is now the one who's in power, and his brothers are in fear for their lives. Originally, they had accused Joseph of being a spy for their father, and now he had accused them of, of, of spying on Egypt, coming from Canaan. They had thrown him in a pit, and now he's the one that takes away their freedom. And originally they had changed their plans for Joseph, first saying that they would murder him and then sell, sell him into slavery. And now Joseph changes his plans on them, telling them, first of all, that nine will stay and one will go back. Uh, and then he changed his mind and he just kept one. He kept Simeon, and he let the other nine return to Canaan. So in these chapters, uh, we have, uh, we, we'll also read really uh, a story of a family whose lives were really in suspended animation. They're stuck. They're kind of frozen in time uh, because of an incident that had happened more than 20 years before. Jacob is stuck in self-pity, as we'll read in a moment, still mourning a son that he believes he's lost. 
and at how life in general was going for him. The brothers are stuck, trying to run from their guilt, not appreciating that it was God who was actually dealing with them through all this. And Joseph himself is stuck to some degree, endeavoring every which way to show grace to his brothers and to lead them to fully acknowledge their guilt and the guilt of their sin, uh, which obviously is the first step in repentance. And so we're going to pick up the story, if you've got your Bibles with you, in chapter 42 and verse 29. And this is where the brothers have arrived home to Jacob and they're sharing with their father what's happened to them in Egypt. And amongst other things, we're going to see that Jacob is full of self-pity. That's the Jacob syndrome. He's full of self-pity. Not once, not twice, not three times, but four times he laments how bad his life has become. Or as the old song says, he was singing the blues. Uh, and I'm going to read some uh, selected verses and, and we'll reference others as we go along in the story. But beginning in chapter 42 and verse, verse 29. And they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan and they told him all that had happened to them. That was while they were in Egypt and, and with Joseph. And then we go down to verse 35. And as they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was a pouch of silver. You see, Joseph had slipped the money that they'd brought with them back into the sacks of grain. And they took it back with them. When they, when they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Because they told him that Joseph wanted Benjamin to come back. And so Jacob laments, Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, you may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care and I will bring him, that is Benjamin, back. But Jacob said, my son will, uh, will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he's the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you're taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. You can almost see the self-pity in, in this man's this man's experience. And continuing on in chapter 43. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt. Their father said to them. Go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him. The man warned us. The man that is his brother. The man warned us solemnly. You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us. We will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him. We will not go down. Because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. And Israel, that is Jacob, said, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? You can just see this man, uh, uh, Jacob, uh, so forlorn and, and, and pitiful about all that's going on. Now before, I suppose, we were too hard on Jacob for all that, uh, being full of self-pity. I mean, let's admit up front, uh, if we can... That we've all been in, in, in that sort of mood uh, in one way or another at one time or another ourselves. Maybe only for a short time, feeling sorry for ourselves. But we've all had our share, haven't we, of, of kind of bad days and, and experiences. You kind of know it's going to be a bad day when people give you the senior citizen discount and you're only 37. Well, you know it's going to be a bad day. Uh, you know it's going to be a bad day when you compliment the boss's wife on her unusual perfume and she isn't wearing any. Um, <laughs> you know it's a bad day when the doctor tells you you're allergic to chocolate and Krispy Kreme donuts. That's a very bad day. Um, 
You know it's a bad day when you call your wife and you tell her that you'd like to eat out tonight. And when you get home, there's a sandwich on the front doorstep. So that's, that's a real bad day. <laughs> and, and, and the whole panorama of, of the life of Joseph, you know, it's interesting that there are three responses to this experience of adversity and, and difficult experiences and bad days. For Joseph, you know, adversity was viewed as ultimately from the hand of a loving heavenly father who's always near, even in times of, of trial and hardship. For Joseph's brothers, adversity was seen as punishment from an angry God who was getting even with them uh, for their sin. And for Jacob, ad adversity was endured as no more than the fickle hand of faith or worse. And I recently read uh, a quote by Pastor John MacArthur who said, The real challenge of Christian living is not to eliminate every comfortable, uncomfortable circumstance from your life, but to trust the infinite, holy, sovereign, and powerful God in the midst of every situation. So let me ask you this morning, how do you see the trials in your life, the difficulties in your life? Do you see them within the framework of an infinite, holy, sovereign and, and powerful God? Or do you tend to sing with, with Jacob, get into the Jacob syndrome and say, well, everything's against me. Everything's against me. Jacob's frame of mind at this time was such that he would have, you know, twisted that familiar children's song, Jesus loves me, to maybe sing, no one loves me, this I know, my misfortunes tell me so. He was in that sort of frame of mind. But Joseph is a model of how to handle adversity. But Jacob is the opposite. And you know, sometimes we can learn from a bad example about how not to respond in times of hardship or difficulty. Unlike Jacob, we must be careful not to look at life's inevitable trials from the wrong side of heaven. There are and there always will be times when things seem to be against us or going wrong. Remember, Jacob doesn't know what we know. He thinks Joseph is dead. He doesn't know that he's alive and that he's now, you know, the prime minister of Egypt and in charge of the plan to distribute food during the famine. All he knows is that on their journey home from getting food in Egypt, one brother opened his sack to feed his donkey and discovered that the money that they'd used to pay for the grain had been returned, sent back with them. All, uh, all the brothers feared... Uh, all of them that, that they would be accused of stealing when they went back to buy more grain and get Simeon out of jail. And for the first time, it's interesting that they recognized God's hand in their circumstances when they cried out, what is this that God has done to us? As, and as if that wasn't bad enough, as they finished their story and, and they all empty their sacks, they discover to their horror that not just one, but everybody's money has been returned. And it's at this point that Jacob bemoans his own version of Murphy's Law. You know Murphy's Law, if something's going to go wrong, it will go wrong. And, and Jacob just laments, everything is against me. He said, just like Jacob, we've all been there before. Circumstances maybe fail to treat us right, as we think. Someone says something to us that's less than complimentary and we don't feel we deserved it. Or we're faced with a difficult decision and, and suddenly we feel that nothing has ever gone right for us in our, our entire lives. And so we start throwing a huge, a huge pity party. But listen, 
in a fallen world and until that day when God either returns or he calls us home, we're going to face trials. We're going to face difficulties. And the reason, uh, and the reason that we tend to maximize our burdens and, and minimize our blessings is because like Jacob, we're looking at life a lot of the time from the wrong side of heaven. He's looking at life horizontally rather than vertically. He only sees the hand that life has dealt him from a human point of view. Because too often we leave God out of the picture until our back is up against the wall. And only then do we capitulate to the vertical perspective. And sometimes not even then. And also like Jacob we not only tend to be horizontal in our perspective of life. But we want to cling to things that God wants us to let go of. Until God in his grace has to unwrap our, 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 our clenched fingers to get them away from us. Henry Newman uh, was a prolific writer, a professor at Harvard and, and Yale Divinity Schools. And he explains in, in his book, With Open Hands, it's called With Open Hands, that we rarely come to God with open hands, ready to receive. And so we miss out on the gifts that God wants to give us. And in the form of a prayer, he writes, Dear God, I am so afraid to open my clenched fists. Who will I be when I have nothing left to hold on to? Who will I be when I stand before you with empty hands? Please help me to gradually open my hands and discover that I am not what I own, but what you want to give me. That's a great prayer. And as we seek to live life in, in accordance with God's will and his ways, you know, our hands may be too full of things that we value and cling to. Our fists may be clenched tight in fear or anger. And we, we, we each have certain things that we don't want to sacrifice. We don't want to give up. We don't want to surrender to God. We, we hold on to them so tight. All kinds of things that we may feel that we must have, we must hold on to, to be happy in this life. But when we're tested in life's adversities, God may be asking us to be willing to give up something that ordinarily may even be a good thing. Because God wants to give us something that's even better. God wants to see us to be willing to choose him and obey him over having whatever we want in this world. And if we're not willing to surrender and we're unwilling to give something up in obedience to God, what we've actually done is made an idol of that thing or that person even. Something that's more important to us than God. And that unwillingness, unwillingness to surrender uh, will cause us to be full of self-pity, to be unhappy and discontent generally in life. I don't know if, if uh, some of you remember that little children's series, Sesame Street. Yeah, Sesame Street. Uh, you remember Ernie was one of the Muppets? Uh, Ernie had a little yellow plastic duck from the bathtub that he loved so much he could never put it down and he held on to it every waking hour for security but he also wanted to learn to play the saxophone which would obviously require two hands and relinquishing the little duck uh, would have to go and so his friends constantly sang to him you gotta put the ducky down if you're going to play the saxophone you see, letting go to God is not a deal that we make with him. 
If I'm letting go of something or someone only to get something from God that I think he'll give me because I've let go, I'm not letting go, I'm just trading. Trying to make a deal with God. A true letting go to God carries no bargaining. Instead, I relinquish my right to have any say in the eventual outcome of my surrender. That's why we sing, I surrender all. It can be very hard and even painful to give up what we hold dear for for something better that God has for us. But there's no shortcut if we're to learn to know and to trust God completely. And throughout his life, Jacob has had had inner conflict because of his clinging to possessions. He stole his brother Esau's blessing, if you remember, way back when. It nearly cost him his life. He fled from his father-in-law Laban's home because Laban was jealous of his livestock. And now in verse 36, Jacob is clinging again. You have deprived me of my children, he moans. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. No, the truth is, there's more of Jacob in most of us than we probably want to admit. And the principles which govern Jacob's actions at this point in his life are an example of how not to trust God. Jacob had still a little bit of the old deceiver in him. And sadly for most of his life he he lived his life out of the old self. The schemer or the Jacob that he used to be. Rather than living life out of his new identity as Israel. A man that God wanted him to be. The bulk of his life he was self-centered. He was self-serving. He was self-pitying. He was content with being a spiritual dwarf when God wanted to make him a spiritual giant. And he's typical of those who are stuck in a kind of, we've always done it this way, or don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's already made up sort of mindset. And the reality that we all have to face up to one way or another, one time or another, we hate change. And yet we love it at the same time. And what we really want is for things to remain the same but they get better and that can never happen something's got to give Jacob thinks that no one has had it as bad as he does and things have never been at the same time things have never been better really for him and his family and yet he didn't have a clue he was not bereaved of his children Joseph was not only alive he he was the ruler of Egypt or the second in command Simeon was also still alive resting soundly under the providential care of God through his younger brother, Joseph. And as for Benjamin, he was about to be reunited with his only full-blooded brother. Because of God's goodness and mercy, if he could have only realized that all of these things were for Jacob and not against him. But he was in this frame of mind, this syndrome, you know, everything's against me. But uh, knowing how the story unfolds, we can see Jacob's life from God's perspective, just like we saw Joseph's own experiences from God's perspective. But Jacob just can't see it yet. He, he's not, not getting it yet. He doesn't, doesn't realize that good news, a reunion, and prosperity actually await him in Egypt. And so he complains and he resists the hand of God that wanted, to, wanted him to move in that direction. And so let me suggest this morning three choices that 
would help, will help you and me to beat the Jacob syndrome of everything is against me sort of thing. First of all, we have to choose to put God back into the center of things. We have to stop asking ourselves, uh, stop and ask ourselves a few basic questions. Is God for me or is he against me? Is God in this or is he not? And as Hebrews 11 and 6 says, am I going to believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him? We have to make a deliberate choice to trust the unseen God. And secondly, we have to choose to put our circumstances into perspective. Even viewing our situation in the light of God's dealings with his people in the Bible and, and in church history. We can see that others have suffered, others have endured in the cause of Christ before us. So when we learn how others have overcome even more severe hardships than us, it somehow helps us to trust God and in what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, to trust him in our momentary and light afflictions. And thirdly, we have to choose to give up selfish and unbelieving thinking and be careful not to accept sinful habits as a way of living life. Uh, as you know, That's just the way it is sort of thing. As Christians, we can't allow ourselves the luxury of a pity party or surround ourselves with reasons why everything is against us so that we can feel comfortable about making excuses for not trusting or being obedient to God when, he wants, when he's wanting to change us. We can and we should take our unbelieving thoughts captive to the truth of God's word and in obedience to Christ and not resign ourselves to believing the lie that we can't change when the truth is we don't want to change. So when things seem to be against us, we can trust in the God who is for us. But we're the ones who must make that choice. Now in contrast to Jacob, his sons are beginning to connect the dots and to get insight about what's happening to them and why. And we see this surprisingly clearly in the change that is happening within the heart of Judah as representative of all the brothers. And to see this, we're... You know, to see this, we're going to have to do a little bit of a sword drill. You remember sword drills? You used to take your Bible and the teacher would, would ask you to, you know, to go to a certain passage. Well, I'm going to ask you to do a sword drill for a moment. So if you've got your Bible, you know, take it out. Uh, open it up at chapter 42. Uh, and, and if you've got a pen or a pencil, that'll be helpful. I'm going to call out verses and words for you to circle. And when you think you've got the main theme regarding these brothers and their realization that God is dealing with them, you can yell out, bingo, bingo, I got it. So chapter 42 and verse 21. Surely we are being punished because of our brother. Circle the word punished. Next verse. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. Circle the accounting. Their hearts sank, verse 28 of 42. Their hearts sank and they turned to each other, trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? Trembling, you can circle that. And now the, uh, chapter 43 and verse 18, now the men were frightened when they were taken to Joseph's house. Circle the word frightened. And then chapter 44 and verse 16, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. Circle the word guilt. Anyone called bingo yet? These guys are racked with guilt. They have an overactive imagination due to an active conscience. And they have this nagging sense that God is out, out to get them for what they've done 20 years before. 
So, so let me just rehearse for you the gist of the next episode uh, in these chapters, uh, the, the next episode of this soap opera that we could call the Middle East Enders, as far as the brothers are concerned. In, in Genesis 43, it begins by revealing that the family is out of grain and uh, they can't go back to Egypt without Benjamin. They've been told to bring him back. And so Jacob eventually relents. He allows Benjamin to go. And it's interesting that it's Judah. Remember Judah? He was the one who was in a complete moral mess back in chapter 38. But it was Judah whose idea it was to sell Joseph into slavery as well, of course. He now says that he'll protect Benjamin. And he pledges his life uh, to bring him back. And so they all go back to Egypt with double the money. And they, and they also took gifts for fear that they would be considered thieves when they, when they returned. So when they arrive back in Egypt, they're taken to Joseph's house, which frightens them. And so they begin to ex explain themselves. But Joseph's steward tells them not to be afraid because they had actually paid for the grain. And then Simeon is brought out. And for the first time in 20 years, all the brothers are in the same house as they wait for Joseph. And when he comes in, all the brothers bow down to him. But in seeing Benjamin, Joseph is overwhelmed with emotions. He leaves the room. He weeps over seeing his, his brother again. And after regaining his composure, he comes back into the room and he orders food to be served. Seating the brothers at the table from the oldest through to the youngest. And uh, serving Benjamin, he serves Benjamin five times more than any of the others. Wouldn't you have liked to have been him? Joseph is still testing his brothers to see if they will complain against the favoritism that Benjamin receives. Just like they complained about the favoritism that he had once received. But they don't. But Joseph has one more test, which is in chapter 44. He instructs his servants to put the money back in their bags with the grain, just like before. But this time, Joseph's own silver cup is put into Benjamin's bag. And after they leave the city, they're chased down, and then the brothers are charged with stealing the silver cup. And they protest their innocence, and so they empty their bags, and there's the silver cup in Benjamin's bag. He's going to have to go back to Egypt, which is another test that Joseph has given his brothers. And so in Genesis 44 and verse 13, we see that all the brothers go back to Egypt. They don't leave Benjamin like they had left Joseph. They fall at the feet of Joseph. And it's Judah, the one who had sold Joseph into slavery, who's a moral mess in Genesis 38, that retells the whole story of how their father will die if they don't go home with Benjamin. And so Judah fulfills his pledge, offers to give his life for Benjamin and be Joseph's servant so that Benjamin can go home. But with this, Joseph can be no longer harsh towards his family. And he finally relents and he reveals himself to his brothers. That's the gist of those chapters. And the truth behind all this is that while the guilt of their past had caused the brothers to feel that God was somehow punishing them, actually, it was the opposite. Because Paul writes in in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, that it's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. Now that's not to say that God doesn't use other means to waken the conscience 
and to bring us to the place where we need to repent and recognize and respond to his love. And yet it's God's love poured out through Joseph that awakens the conscience of these sin-hardened brothers. You know, guilt is a valuable thing. Most secular counselors these days see guilt as a problem. And so their goal is to eliminate any and all guilt feelings. You shouldn't be feeling guilty. It's bad for you. But it's not guilt that's the problem here. It's what, it's what, what they've done that's the problem. And it's our sin, not the symptoms or the feelings that we have, that's the real problem. Guilt should motivate us to make necessary changes. Just as pain sometimes makes us address physical problems and go to the doctor to get it checked out. Guilt can lead us to address spiritual and relational problems. And it's, it's doing just that in the hearts of these brothers. Or some people, I don't know about you, but some people try to redirect their guilt in order to do what they can to keep from admitting any personal guilt. We might do this by rationalizing our behavior or blaming someone else. And, you know, we've become a society that's particularly skilled in rationalizing and, and, and explaining and, and blaming. Twenty years before, Joseph's brothers probably said the same thing. You know, he's had it coming. That should teach him a lesson. That should teach him to walk around like he's better than the rest of us. Or maybe it was for his own good. Somebody needed to put him in his place. We're a nation of blamers. So when someone's caught in a wrong, you hear, you know, well, I had a dysfunctional upbringing, a dysfunctional home. In other words, what they're saying is, I'm not responsible for my behavior. Blame my upbringing. Or they say, that's just the way I am. Get used to me. I'm not responsible. Blame my genes or blame God who created me. Or they might say, well, well, they started it. I'm not responsible. They are. Or maybe the excuse, I didn't know it was wrong. I'm not responsible. It's your fault because you didn't tell me. Some people try to redirect their guilt. Blame. Then some people try to bury their guilt thinking if you deny the guilt, maybe it'll go away. It's my belief that for 20 years, these brothers probably never talked about what they had done to Joseph. But the problem is that while you can try and bury your guilt over something, you can't really get rid of it. It'll always be there. And as soon as the pressure began to build for these brothers, all the guilt came bubbling up to the surface again. And in chapter 42, verse 22, they start to bicker with each other. And Reuben says, didn't, didn't I tell you not to harm the boy? You see, you can bury your guilt deep. But just like toxic waste, it eventually works its way back to the surface. And it may manifest itself in, in strained relationships or in physical ways such as high blood pressure or depression. Or it may even reveal itself in a constant state of dread that comes from the fear of being found out. So some people try to redirect their guilt or bury their guilt. And some people try to pay for their guilt. But the dilemma is, how much is enough? How big of a guilt trip bill do you need to pay for that child that you aborted? For the person you refused to be reconciled with before they died? For the children you abandoned, perhaps? For the dishonesty that you engaged in? Or for the immoral relationship that you're involved in. There's guilt there, but how, how do you pay for that? 
We become driven by a guilt sometimes that seems to be unerasable. We can't wipe it out. The end result is a lingering depression or a frustration that comes out in a negative attitude or in an angry spirit. These brothers were attempting to do this when they brought extra gifts for Joseph. And while there's nothing wrong with trying to make things right, it's impossible to undo the past by doing good things in the present. You have to face up to the past. Deal with it. Unresolved guilt will also cause us to tend to think the worst. So when they're unexpectedly invited into Joseph's palace, we read in chapter 43 and verse 18, now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought, we were brought here because of the silver that was put in our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. <laughs> oh, Shakespeare and Henry VI wrote, suspicion always haunts the guilty mind. You'll always be suspicious if there's some guilt in your background. And when you're feeling guilty over some wrong you've done, even little things will begin to play with your imagination. And it's described here in four consecutive actions. Attack, they said, overpower, seize, take wasn't so sad it would be laughable. Joseph is second in command in Egypt. Do they really think that he needs more donkeys? <laughs> it's as dumb as thinking that Wayne Rooney wants to take away your football. Um, guilt causes us to imagine the absurd and consider it to be real. And it causes us to misinterpret simple acts of kindness and look for some ulterior motive that, when there is none. Perhaps the most insidious thing about unrepentant guilt is that it clouds out our sense of God. In chapter 43, the brothers are shaking in their sandals over the silver being discovered in their sacks. So Joseph's heathen servant says to them, it's okay, it's okay. And what's so tragic here is that these people of God need to have the goodness of God pointed out to them by a pagan. The brothers only speak of God's name as a source of fear and dread and judgment. They were assuming the worst, but a pagan servant sees God as a source of blessing and treasure. And to confirm to them that there's no hidden ambush or plot here, he immediately brings in their brother, Simeon, to them. It never crossed their minds that this return of their money might be the abundance of the grace of God because guilt kept them from seeing God's hand of grace in their lives. And as we conclude here this morning, let me just say that the only cure for guilt in any shape or form is to confess it. Confess. But it's important that we understand what it means to confess our sin. To confess means to agree with God. It means that we must recognize what we've done. We, uh, we must have a desire to turn away from such behavior and God helping us not to engage in that attitude or that action again. The Bible calls this an attitude of repentance. But, you know, merely saying you're sorry isn't enough. If a person offends you and says they're sorry, but then does the same thing again and again and again, their sincerity and their depth of sorrow is questionable, isn't it? Because it's not so much the words that we say as the attitude of our heart and what we do. People can feel sorry, but not repentant. These brothers seemed sorry. They felt that they were getting their just rewards. But the question is, why were they sorry? 
Were they sorry for their sinful behavior or were they sorry for the trouble and shame their behavior got them into? Unrepentant sorrow, you know, is a very common type of sorrow. An abusive spouse or an abusive parent can say sorry after some angry, violent outburst. But they're really not sorry for their behavior, sorry enough to get help. Or are they just saying that they're sorry because they don't want their spouse to file charges or, or divorce them? The drunk driver can say that they're sorry after someone is injured or killed in an accident. But are they sorry for their behavior or are they sorry that they are facing the consequences of their behavior? A thief can say that they're sorry after he's arrested, but he may only be sorry for getting caught. It's even possible for a person to feel sorrow because, because they're afraid of hell or going to hell and yet not feel sorrow for their sin. They're not sorry for offending a holy God. They don't want to be punished. You can even be attracted to the gospel without being repentant because of the promise of forgiveness from sin, because it holds out the hope of life after death, or because it takes, uh, talks about blessings and, 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 and the peace in this life. And many people want the benefits of God but have no desire to turn from their sin or honor God with their living. They want the benefits without having to make any changes. They want a restored relationship with God and still be able to live any way that they want to. But you can't have it both ways. There must be a confession and real repentance. You know, God did not design us to deal with guilt. And the brothers are about to be set free from their guilty past. They don't have a clue that Joseph is behind it all. And behind Joseph stands a God who has orchestrated every detail to bring them to this moment. And in every story there comes a moment when the truth has to come out. And now the truth comes from the mouth of Judah. And speaking for his brothers, he admits their guilt. Chapter 44, verse 16. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. And his confession isn't just cheap talk. It's easy to say, I'm sorry, and then go on living just like you were before. But true repentance means that there's an action accompanying the words. In fact, Judah's speech is the longest speech in the whole book of Genesis. And it's very significant that he acknowledged that it was God himself who had uncovered their sin. They didn't see this as Joseph's doing, but behind it, they recognized God's divine intervention. And their attitude has completely changed from chapter 42, verse 28, when they said, what is this that God has done to us? To chapter 44, verse 16, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. And here at last is what Joseph has been waiting for. Not just an admission of guilt, but an acknowledgement of God. And then he does what is humanly possible, uh, impossible rather, except for the grace of God. We all know what happens next. He identifies himself as their brother. There's reconciliation. His whole family eventually are brought to live in Egypt. But that's where we'll pick it up next week for the final installment in this life of Joseph. But let me just say this as we go to prayer for a moment. Self-pity, the Jacob syndrome, and guilt are designed to drive us into the arms of a gracious, loving God whose desire is not only to love us but to reconcile us to himself 
and to regenerate and to transform us. And a gospel that doesn't result in a change in our everyday living is no, no gospel at all. You know, if you've not turned from your sin to faith in Christ this morning, I want to tell you you're shrugging off the kindness of God. Joseph's brothers provide us with an excellent illustration of salvation. In their current spiritual state, they faced Joseph with great fear. And in the same way today, sinful men and women dread the thought of standing before a righteous, holy God. And frantically, people seek to gain God's favor and acceptance by trying to live the golden rule or the Ten Commandments or joining a church or being baptized. But all of these are unacceptable to God as a basis for salvation. What saves a man or a woman is a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And when we stand before the throne of God, the only thing that God will be interested in is our relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. That's the consistent message of the scripture. Do you have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ? God wants this morning to extend his grace to you again. The grace that he demonstrated on the cross. But you have to come to him. You must come to Jesus, repent of your sin and guilt, trust him as your personal saviour, determined by his grace to not go back to your old way of life and patterns of behaviour. Because Paul said in 2 Corinthians, didn't he? Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Hallelujah. Behold, all things have become new. Let's, let's pray together.